Well, hello to all my amen friends. I've been missing you. And I'm speaking now to an empty room. Where are all of you? Well, I'm glad you're online listening to our amen lesson. It's an honor to be one of your summer amen teachers. And uh, I've been given the freedom to choose whatever text I want to choose. And it seemed to me that a great place to go would be to the writings of one of my favorite people of all time, as you know, the Apostle Paul, and specifically his last letter, which is a very impassioned one. So if you've got your ESV study Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to page 2338, and there you have 2 Timothy. Let's pray together, and then we're going to dig into one of the texts in this really important letter that I think is relevant big time for today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity as men to gather around your word and to encourage one another in it. As we study this text together, would you please speak to our hearts, conform us more to the likeness of Christ, move us more deeply into the apostolic ministry that this world may benefit from us as salt and light. So Lord, speak to our hearts. We are your servants, and we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you'll remember that 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in his second imprisonment in Rome. He was there at least twice in prison, but this one was the imprisonment when Paul knew quite clearly that he would be facing imminent death. In his first imprisonment, which was house arrest, he seemed quite confident that he would spring free and uh, perhaps even be able to go on to Spain to minister. But in this imprisonment, he knows that he's a condemned man. And he writes passionately to his son in the faith, Timothy, whom he has discipled uh, from the early days when he went through Lystra and Derby and picked up Timothy, whose mama was a very fine Christian. And Timothy had been trained in the things of God, but he came to know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ through the apostles' ministry. And he then accompanied Paul very closely for the years that follow. And Paul is concerned, as you know, because Paul has been the chief messenger of the gospel throughout Asia Minor and Europe. And now coming to an end, he needs to handle the hand the baton over to men like Titus and Timothy and, and others. And you will remember that Timothy, it seems, had a little bit of a weak uh, constitution. Paul encouraged him to drink wine for his stomach to settle it down at times. Paul even encouraged the Corinthians to lighten up and be easier on his little brother Timothy because of Timothy's nervousness. And you remember that at the very beginning of 2 Timothy, uh, Paul says to him in chapter 1 that we have not received a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and of self-control or a sound mind. In other words, Paul is saying, Timothy, don't look to your native abilities. Look to the Holy Spirit of God. Let him equip you and empower you for this ministry. So Paul is quite concerned that Timothy uh, look for strength from the Lord uh, in order to carry on this great apostolic ministry after Paul is off the scene. So in 64 or 65 AD, under the uh, emperorship of uh, Nero, 
uh, Paul writes what appears to be his final letter. So we're going to look at chapter 3, if you will. Uh, We're going to look at the entire chapter because it all kind of hangs together. Paul is talking to Timothy in this chapter about the struggles of his own day, and I think we'll see the parallels with our day, and what then will be required out of Timothy, which is what is required out of us. So let's look then at 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, all the way through uh, verse 17. Hear the word of God. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, you uh, have an outline, uh, at least I think you do. And on the, the Roman numeral number one, we want to look at the first nine verses. You'll see that this uh, chapter really divides in half. Verses one, one through nine give us the current milieu into which Timothy was to conduct his ministry. Verses 10 through 17 show you what kind of man Timothy is to be in this fallen and decaying world. So we're going to look, first of all, at the world. And you'll notice that the world opposes the gospel. The world opposes the gospel. Now, Paul does two things here. He first of all addresses the general condition of the world, and then he specifically addresses some of the teachers that are in this broken and fallen world who are affecting the church. So first of all, you have a 
description of this fallen world, and then you have a description of some of these false teachers. Now, if you look at verses one through five, you'll see, and this is A on your outline, the world is decaying. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now you remember from the scriptures, going all the way back to Acts chapter two, when Pentecost came and Peter was describing the meaning of the age of Pentecost. He said, just as Joel predicted in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So uh, Peter was saying, these are the days Joel was talking about. These are the last days. Furthermore, you see several times in the scriptures, a prediction about the last days being a time of great difficulty. So from the time of the ascension of Christ and the coming of the spirit until Jesus Christ returns in his second advent, these are the last days. And Jesus, the prophet Daniel, Paul, and others predict for us that these days will be especially intense in terms of the hostility brought against the gospel. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because the gospel in these last days is going around the world and is confronting the evils in every culture, including our own. And so the demons pop out, as it were, and oppose this great missional enterprise. So we're in the last days and we should expect that they will be difficult. Now, if you look at verses two through four carefully, you see here an amazing number of descriptors some of them are unique to this text. They're not found anywhere else in the New Testament. But Paul just goes on and on about the nature of the world that he's living in. Uh, these people are uh, uh, proud, arrogant, abusive. They're ungrateful. They're unholy. They're heartless. Uh, they can't be appeased. Uh, they're slanderous. They have no self-control. They're brutal. On and on. 18 descriptions of this world. Uh, make no mistake about it, Paul is not fooled by the wickedness of his own day. He's able to call it what it is and not to compromise with it and to make it very clear that he sees through the wickedness of his own generation. Do you? Can you feel the, not just the insanity, but the wickedness that surrounds us at times? And we Christians need to be very honest about what the nature of this decay is. It's absolute rebellion against God. Now, these descriptions, most New Testament scholars say, are not in a, a real logical order like some of his other lists of vices. Here they seem to be a little bit more random, but I would have you notice that the word love is used several times, and particular misdirected love. And I think it, it, it probably hints and one of the main things that is in the apostles' mind about the world is that they're, they're loving the wrong things. And what happens to you when you become a real believer in Jesus Christ is you are now in love with God. And that love orients you properly to the world in which you were made and to the God who made you. It's getting your love directed properly that is distinctive to the Christian. Well, look at how Paul here describes it. They're lovers of themselves. They're selfish. And of course, if you read John Calvin on the Christian life in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, you'll see that the first step 
and repenting to God is self-denial. Well, these folks don't deny themselves anything, it seems. At the very end there, verse 4, you see lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So they're choosing to just satisfy their own carnal lusts instead of loving God. And you also see here that in verse 2, they're lovers of money. So they're materialists, and they, they go after what is going to give them power and pleasure and comfort and convenience with all their hearts. That's what they really love, and it's in our natural selves. And to be a follower of Christ, we are continually renouncing and repenting uh, from these things. Notice also in verse 4, that, uh, or rather in verse 3, they are not loving good. So whatever is good and holy and beautiful and right, they don't love it. What a corrupt world that we're living in. And he says in verse 5, avoid such people. Now, you know very well, just like I do, that he doesn't mean avoid them evangelistically. No, that's our mission on the face of the planet. That's the reason we're here, is to reach such people for we once were numbered among them to reach such people that they may turn and love the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy all the benefits of being in relationship with him. But here's what Paul means. These are not your soulmates. These are not the ones you just hang out with and recreate with, with no missional agenda. No, these are not the ones that you share the deepest things in life with. And these are certainly not the ones you imitate. Avoid such people, he says. So you have to understand the distinction between yourself and the people of this world. As Paul says in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So when you look at verse 5, it makes you think he's actually talking about some church people. He says, they have the appearance of godliness. That is, they show up at church, they sing the hymns, they profess their faith, but they deny his power. How do they deny his power? They do so by not living the life of spiritual power, not conducting their lives according to the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, don't be fooled by the hypocrites, people who are just faking their Christianity, and there are hundreds of thousands of them. He says, avoid such people in terms of treating them like brothers and sisters. Now, notice as you turn to, to verse 6 through 9, that the apostle now says there's an additional complication. That among some of these folks, and they include some hypocrites that are in the visible church. Among them are some false teachers. They're not only conducting their lives in an immoral way, they're teaching other people to do the same. And he says, for among them, verse 6, are those, they creep into households and they capture vulnerable people. Now, we don't know exactly who the women are that the apostle is talking about here, but very likely they could have been women who were coming from very broken backgrounds and illiterate backgrounds. And some of these false teachers were moving into their homes during the day while their husbands or brothers or fathers were out working somewhere and they come in and, and entice them. And it even suggests possibly they were having immoral relationships with them. And so he says, these false teachers, they'll do almost anything uh, to 
gather a crowd and they move in among our most vulnerable population in the church to get their toehold. And that's exactly what false teachers do. They find where the soft underbelly is, so to speak, and that's where they do their work to try to gain a foothold within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is warning Timothy, you must take up the cause within the church to protect the vulnerable people uh, from these types of folks. So notice the corrupt character of these religious charlatans. And Paul says in verse 9, they're not going to get very far because eventually their foolishness will be plain to everybody. You know, you, you can find so many parallels. The, the ones that have been most common in the recent uh, decade have been those churches now that are flaunting their sexual immorality. And they're calling what the Bible calls wicked, they're calling it not only acceptable, but good and promoting it and celebrating it. These are religious charlatans. They're false teachers and their character is corrupt. And eventually their foolishness will be found out. So Paul is saying, Timothy, you've been given the word of God. You've been given righteousness. You stick to it no matter what the crowds are saying. And they will say it and they'll say it very loudly. You have some religious leaders who believe it's perfectly acceptable to go into the streets and angrily, violently burn down other people's property because you're angry about a cause. And Paul would never tolerate such mob mentality, uh, what I call tribal robotics, tribal robots who just go along with what their group is saying. Here's a Trump follower. So anything Trump says is okay, even though I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a tribal robot. Or here's a person who's promoting racial justice. And so anything BLM says is okay, tribal robot. And Paul is saying to Timothy, you're not a tribal robot. You're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that you are going to feel the dissonance of a wicked culture around you that sometimes even pervades the institutional church. So he's setting Timothy up now for what kind of man Timothy is supposed to be. And it ought to set us up for what kind of men we're supposed to be in an age that's so loud and chaotic and confusing where there's almost no voice in the public arena that you can adopt completely. You have to differentiate yourself from almost every speaking head, talking head out there. That brings us to verse, verse 10 through verse 17 on your outline. This is Roman numeral number two. And here's what I think we're being taught. You are different. And the reason I say that is in verse 10, the apostle Paul says to Timothy, you, however. And in verse 14, but as for you, look back at chapter two, you then, verse one. And then look at chapter four, verse five. You get this same uh, kind of expression again, as for you, always be sober-minded, et cetera, et cetera. So the, one of the key phrases in First and Second Timothy is, but you, but you, you're different. You don't just go along with a political group or some sort of business guild or professional society or family legacy. 
But you, you're to be distinctly following Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. That is the emphasis of verses 10 through 17. Let's take a look at it. Because here, Paul is going to be recounting for Timothy a number of his assets and basically reminding him who he is and what he has. Timothy, you're not like this world. Timothy, you're different. Timothy, remember what the Lord has given you. And I want you to see four things that the Apostle Paul tells Timothy that he has received that he needs to remember. This is A on your outline under Roman numeral two. A is you have mentors. That's in verse 10. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So really Paul is presenting himself to Timothy in two ways. He says, first of all, Timothy, you know my teaching. You know the content of the gospel. You know what I've shared with other people. You know the apostolic doctrine. So Timothy, you have that deposit. And of course, during First and Second Timothy, Paul is encouraging Timothy constantly to proclaim and to guard that good deposit of teaching, which he has received from the Apostle Paul, which Paul himself received by the Holy Spirit from the Lord Jesus Christ. Guard it, Timothy. Stick to it. So first of all, Paul says, I've been your teacher, and you know what I've taught you. And you know what? You and I have had teachers too. And I think back about the men and women who have influenced me in my life. And there's a certain obligation I feel. They gave me something of their lives. They gave me their hearts. They gave me the truth. And I had, there's a certain obligation that I have, having received this precious truth, now to guard it with my life. You're the same way. You've had mentors and teachers in your life who have shaped you. And you take that teaching now and you, you guard it. And you learn it and you communicate it. So first of all, Paul is saying he's a teacher. But most dominantly in verse 10, Paul is saying that he's a model uh, of the Christian life that Timothy has received. Timothy has a hero. He has a mentor. He has a model. You know, in my life, I usually don't make someone one of my heroes until they die because like Solomon, you can always mess up at the end of your life. So you won't become one of my heroes until you die uh, and, and you're safe to make a hero. But a number of you are my mentors, people who have poured your life into me, who have shaped me, who have set out before me a godly example. And frankly, that's what you and I are supposed to be doing for the next generation, not only with your own children and grandchildren, you're to be doing it with all those who will come under your influence. What a Christian wants to do is to exercise his influence wherever God opens the door for him. So we want to influence other people. And boy, did Paul ever influence people. And he certainly influenced Timothy. He says, Timothy, you've walked closely with me. You've not only heard me teach, you've not only heard my lectures, but you've seen me under all kinds of circumstances. And he uses some important words here. He says, my conduct, you know my lifestyle. You know whether I had illicit sexual affairs or not. You know how I talked to the opposite sex. You know how I conducted myself with alcohol and, and drugs. You, you know how I dealt with 
poor people. You, you know my conduct when it comes to how we deal with racial justice within the church. You've watched me uh, and you've seen that model and you know my aim in life. You know what I'm trying to accomplish, which is simply to please God. You know that. I'd give my life for that. And so Paul, because he's lived that kind of life, he can teach out of his example. And brothers, you know as well as I do that teaching the gospel is different from teaching anything else in the world. You can't really teach scriptural truth without embracing it. You've got to be the number one illustration for your message to your children, your grandchildren, your Sunday school class, whomever you're teaching. And that's exactly what Paul has done so that Paul's life becomes one of his most powerful weapons in his teaching ministry. He can just continually point to himself. You know in his epistles, at least seven times he explicitly says, follow me as I follow Christ or imitate me or do as I do. We usually would be a little reluctant to say that. It sounds a little prideful but not if you're making disciples of all nations, not if you're duplicating your ministry through other people. You should be able to say, come live with me and see what the Christian life is like. That's what the apostle Paul did. And he reminded Timothy, Timothy, you've had me as an example. And of course, Timothy is responsible for that. You have mentors. Now look at B on your outline, verses 11 through 13. And here, Paul is reminding Timothy that he has fellow sufferers, fellow sufferers. He says, Timothy, you not only know my conduct and, and my love, but you know my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Well, of course, Timothy knew. Paul had been stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Everyone thought he was a goner. But after his persecutors left, Paul was able to be revived and he kind of stumbled his way back into town, spent the night and headed off out of there the next day. But Paul uh, was severely abused and Timothy saw that with his own eyes. Just like Paul, when he was named Saul, saw Stephen stoned to death in, in, in Acts chapter 7. Paul was holding the garments of the men who stoned Stephen. I'm sure Paul never forgot that. And he never forgot the words that Stephen spoke. Father, don't hold this against them. Forgive them. Just like his Lord said on the cross. So Paul had this vivid memory in his own mind. And he said, Timothy, you, you, you have that in your mind. You, you've seen me suffer. You know what sufferings come to us. And of course, in Jesus' ministry, he repeatedly warned his disciples that they'll, when they come to him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross, an, an instrument of execution. And he said to Peter and the others, when you come, you'll eventually have a hundredfold of houses, family, friends, and so on with persecution. So the blessings are great, but with those blessings come persecutions. And Jesus even said, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Why? Because you're numbered among the prophets. And Paul went even further. 
And he said in Philippians chapter 3 that I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Why? Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. So Paul taught that sufferings are not something we try to experience. But when we do, we embrace them because that assures us that we're walking with Jesus because that is the mark of a Jesus follower. Paul says in Galatians, when they were suggesting every man, Christian man should be circumcised like a good Jew, Paul says, I don't need your marks. I've got my marks on my back. <laughs> I've, I've been marked out by the persecutions. So those are what mark you out. And furthermore, as Paul is saying, it draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've given you a long quote from John Calvin in the Institutes in book three, chapter eight, where he says fundamentally, if Christ has been persecuted, would you expect less for yourself? Would you want anything else for yourself? But full identification with Jesus Christ, you're blessed if you're persecuted by this fallen and decaying world and by the false prophets who rail against you. It's a blessing. Now, everything in us naturally wants to be popular. We want to get along with people. We don't like having enemies. We don't enjoy conflict. But you must look more deeply than just your natural desires and realize there's a spiritual reality that's involved with experiencing persecution because you're following Jesus Christ. There's hardly any higher honor. So we are called to suffering. You can see it, for example, we're in 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says to Timothy there, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Look at verse 16. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And then look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. He says, share in suffering, verse 3, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, and so on. So as a soldier, as an athlete, as a farmer, we persevere in hard work and in sufferings. So it's endemic to the Christian life. And, and Paul is saying to Timothy in this second possession that Timothy has, he has, first of all, mentors, particularly the mentor of the Apostle Paul. Secondly, he's got fellow sufferers. He's got a community of suffering. They're suffering with him. Come on, let's join together in the suffering. Now, C on your outline uh, addresses verses 14 and 15. And here we'll see the Apostle is reminding Timothy of his legacy, of his heritage, actually his family heritage. This is not true with every one of you, but with most of you it is. That you had a parent or a grandparent. Some of you it was an aunt or an uncle. It may have been a cousin. It could have been a football coach. It could have been a dance instructor. It could have been a teacher or a professor. Somebody gave you a knowledge of the scriptures. In Timothy's case, Lois and Eunice, uh, his mother and grandmother were believers and they cultivated this boy and he had the scriptures from the very beginning. When a, a boy is five years old in a Jewish family, he's to be trained in the scriptures. And Lois and Eunice saw to it. And Paul is saying, Timothy, 
we've now rehearsed the character of the people, the loud people, who are in this broken, fallen, sinful, and adulterous world. Now, would you please compare that to your mother? Tell me which of those two, uh, the, the world, and the foolish people in the world, or your mother, do you believe is righteous? This is a no-brainer. What did your mother give you? She gave you the Bible. Anybody who loved you and knew better gave you God's word. Don't forget what you've got. And so often what's, what's tragic is that we go off to university, we get involved in our careers, and we just squander our privileges. We just think that, oh, well, that's done. That was when I was a child. Oh, no, this is a treasure that's to be cultivated and cherished throughout my life and put into practice. So he's reminding him that he has this tremendous heritage from the Lord. And if you have a heritage of believing parents, that is a gift from the Lord. Don't squander it. If you have friends who have led you to a knowledge of the scriptures, that's a gift from the Lord. Don't squander it. Now, fourthly and lastly, look at verses 16 and 17, and this is D on your outline. And here he's reminding Timothy, you have the scriptures. You not only have a family who gave them to you and friends who gave them to you, but you have the scriptures. And these scriptures, you'll notice if you look back in verse 15, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now we know that by observing the natural order of things, unless we are foolishly and rebelliously suppressing the truth, that we should be able to infer immediately that there is a creator, there is a God, who has designed everything and who sustains everything. Otherwise, anybody who's, who has the, a fifth grade education in physical science knows that this world couldn't possibly have just come out of the murk and it couldn't possibly be sustained with the order that it has without a divine intelligence. So Paul says that in Romans chapter one. So we know that all the foolishness that's coming from the atheistic world and the agnostic world is just actively suppressing the obvious. And so they're going to continue to put out listening satellites to see if we can hear some message from another galaxy. <laughs> well, as Calvin would say, good luck. Uh, they're not going to hear it because God has made us in the order that you see in the human body and in our environment makes it obvious that there is a God. Now, so every human being, apart from his foolishness, would be able to see that much. But what the fallen human being can't do from the creation is to infer a God who has forgiven our sins and guaranteed us eternal life. That is only learned from the Holy Scriptures. And that's the reason for our mission to the world. Because until they get the message, they are lost and doomed and damned. So the message of the gospel has to get out. Paul says, Timothy, you had the message. You have it now. And that message alone, the scriptures, is able to make you wise unto salvation. The very essence of wisdom is to fear the Lord. 
And it is in salvation that we learn to fear him, that is to have reverence for him with joy and love, a real biblical fear, a real biblical reverence, only through the scriptures. So first of all, Timothy, in having the scriptures, you were introduced to wisdom. And now you're a wise young man because you have the Bible. But notice uh, that when we get to verse 16, there are several things I want us to notice about the scriptures that Paul brings to Timothy's mind. Three things, actually, about these scriptures. First of all, let's notice this is number one under D. The nature of the scriptures in 16a, where Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. So the word breathed out is a Greek word, theopneustos. Uh, Theos means God. Uh, Pneuma is the spirit or, or breath. So the scriptures are the breath of God. It comes from him. It's his voice. You say, really? I mean, Paul wrote them. Peter wrote them. John wrote them. Matthew wrote scriptures. Moses wrote scriptures. Is it really from God? Yes. In this sense, uh, we know that the scriptures were written intentionally by the authors. They had their own agenda. But confluently with human intentionality was divine intentionality, which was the dominant intentionality. And so you have a confluence of human intentionality and authorial intent and the divine intent so that God expressed what he wanted his people to know through the desires and intentionalities of these authors. And God, the Holy Spirit, superintended the entire thing. That's the apostolic theology of the scriptures. It's also the theology of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, ultimately, you want to know how you should look at the scriptures? You should look at them the way Jesus does. And he says, not a jot, not a tittle. That is a little quirk on a Hebrew letter. Not even a little tittle will pass away from the word of God. So Jesus was very careful in his human experience to reverence the word of God. He received it as the word of God and taught it that way throughout the gospel accounts. It's just real simple for me. I want to look at the Bible the way Jesus does. And the way Jesus did was that when, and this is the way B.B. Warfield put it, and I put this quote in your notes, what scripture says, God says. That's it. You know, some say, uh, God said, said it, I believe it, that settles it. R.C. Sproul used to say, no, that's not the right order. It should be this. God said it, that settles it, I believe it. <laughs> so what scripture says, God says. And for that reason, when you read it, it would be very appropriate uh, if, if you have occasion. Just get on your knees when you're reading the Bible. It's God's word to you. Bow down to him. You're hearing his voice and he's speaking to you, his son. Oh, what a treasure is the word of God. John Calvin said, we owe to scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from him alone. That's the way to look at the Bible. That's what uh, Paul is reminding Timothy about the nature of the gift that he has. This is the very word of God. Now, of course, if you've taken a course in university, you were taught 
all different kinds of things about how we uh, got the word of God. By the time of Jesus, um, the, I think the actual reality is by the time of Jesus, the Old Testament books were, were settled. And so by the, you'll find with Jesus and the apostles, they, with, with maybe one or two exceptions, uh, the books they quote are what you have in the Old Testament. So it was a settled, what we call canon. The word canon just means rule. But the, the Old Testament canon is the rule of what books are in the, in the Bible. And that was settled by the time of Jesus. In the New Testament, of course, it took several hundred years before it was officially declared. But in all the various churches, they were generally using the same letters and gospel accounts. And the reason is, if something's authored by the Holy Spirit, you would expect the people filled with the Holy Spirit to recognize it as such. And so there were a few books in the New Testament that were debated in council, but most of them were commonly accepted and understood to be from the apostles or those like Mark uh, uh, or Luke who were close, very close to an apostle. So that's how we humanly received our New Testament. But we believe, of course, as the people of the Spirit, that God the Holy Spirit breathed that book out for us. And if you're a Christian, your heart resonates with that book because it, it is the same Spirit who regenerated you, who authored those books for us. Now notice when you come to, this is number two on your outline, under D, you have the Scriptures. Number one, the nature of the Scriptures. Number two, the use of the Scriptures. And here, the Apostle Paul is reminding Timothy how useful this treasure is. It's not just to read for your personal devotions and put back on the shelf and then go live a Christian life. That's very important. But that's not the end of the story. This Bible is very powerful. It transforms nations. It transforms worlds and whole generations. And here's why. He says it's useful for teaching. Aha. So when the Bible teaches me something, it's useful for me to communicate it. Have you noticed? It's true in your life. You learn it. It's meant to be passed on. You know, the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea because the Jordan River runs into it and nothing runs out of it. But the Sea of Galilee has the Jordan coming in and going out. It's a living sea with fish and, and uh, beauty in it. It's because it has an outlet. The Word of God is to have an outlet in your life. So you're sharing it with other people. You get into small groups. We've got discussion questions for you today. You get in small groups and share what the Bible means to you. Secondly, he says it's useful for reproof. And certainly isn't this true within the church? How do we reprove one another? How do we rebuke one another according to the word? And the word is useful for that. You may rebuke me for a lot of things. You don't like the clothes I wear or the way I comb my hair. That's not in the Bible. But the Bible is useful for you to reprove me on things that really matter about my life and the things I believe. The Bible is useful for that. He says also the Bible is useful for correction. That is, not only will you tell me this is wrong, but now you'll show me this is right. Here's the right way, walkie in it. And you come alongside me and we're discussing the word of God together and we go down the correct narrow path. The Bible is useful for that. We disciple one another. We encourage one another with the Bible. Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got this enormously powerful weapon in your hands. Use it. 
for teaching and reproving correction. And then he said for training in righteousness. So we all know we have to be trained. I mean, that's the reason that some of you have been in Amen Bible study for over 20 years. You and I both know we've got to be trained. It's the reason that during COVID-19, I've been having a heyday. I've been quoting Calvin. Well, the reason is I'm taking it as an opportunity to go through 1,600 pages of Calvin's Institutes again. It's been 35 years since I was able to do that and underline and discuss with some friends the important texts. I've been reading about church history again. I've been trying to apply myself so that I can be trained and can help train other people. So the Bible, uh, in various means, coming through our teachers or as we read directly the Bible, the Word of God, we're being trained. It's useful for that. John Calvin said, Doctrine is not an affair of the tongue. I read this just the other day. You can see I'm in book three. Doctrine is not an affair of the tongue, but of the life. It is not apprehended by the intellect and memory merely, like other branches of learning, but is received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds its seat and habitation in the inmost recesses of the heart. And you'll find the same thing when Moses was training Joshua. He said, do not let this book of the law depart out of your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. That's the way to be a leader. Meditate on the word of God. In your business, if you're a leader, you need to meditate on the word of God. If you're operating on somebody's body, you need to meditate the word, on the word of God so that you're the physician God wants you to be, and so on. If you're a lawyer, you need to meditate upon the law of God, not just the law of the land. Because the law of God shapes your whole mentality and your whole life. So he's saying the use of the scriptures is training in righteousness. Luther, at the end of his life, I've given you this quote. At the end of his life, after all of his struggles and volume after volume of things that he wrote and hundreds and thousands of sermons and lectures, he said, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I did nothing. The Word did it all. I did nothing. I left it to the Word. Isn't that amazing if you know Luther's history? And these famous words of John Wesley. I want to know one thing. The way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God has condescended to teach the way. For this very end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri. That is a man of one book. <laughs> Brothers, that's what we want. That's where our heart has to go. Give me that book. Give me the life that comes from a spirit a, a application of that word in my heart. Now, thirdly and lastly, if you look at verse 17, Paul is showing Timothy that he has the Scriptures and he discusses the nature of the Scriptures, the use of the Scriptures, but here, the sufficiency of the Scriptures. He says, Timothy, you don't have to go to Greek oratory school to become a great rhetorician, to use flowery language, you don't have to study the philosophers, although Paul did. 
you don't have to be a university graduate. If you have the Word of God, you're sufficient. You're equipped. And brothers, you are. If, you have the, if you're studying the Word of God and imbibing it, you're equipped for this generation with all of its craziness. You're equipped for COVID-19 and its isolations. You're equipped for a lousy economy that may get worse. You're equipped for all the moral chaos and the sexual immorality of our age. You're equipped for the people in the highest court to, to pervert the use of the English language to get what they want out of a Supreme Court ruling. You're equipped for this. You've got it. It's all there. He says the scriptures are what equip us for every good work. So says John in his first epistle, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Put the Bible into practice. And there is holiness and power and righteousness and justice and that which pleases the Lord. Well, Paul was concerned to encourage his younger brother in the Lord as he prepared to leave the scene of this broken world. And even with someone who had a, a weakened constitution like Timothy, Paul was absolutely confident. If you have the Spirit and you have the Word of God, you've got what you need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us these great gifts. The gift of mentors, the gift of a legacy that so many of us have, the gift of your word, the gift of a community of sufferers who will go into the world and suffer joyfully with us. Grant us the courage and steadfastness that we need for this day and time, that your name may be exalted and your kingdom expanded here and around the world. And bless these men in Amen Bible study that they may always be faithful students of the Word of God. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been good to be with you. God bless you.